From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. There was no shortage of fireworks in the highly anticipated season opener for the Orange and Blue as the Dan Molinera got off to a rousing start in a 53-6 pummeling of Charleston Southern. The Gators are now hoping that the energy and momentum generated in the Swamp keep rolling for another week as Florida is preparing to put its astonishing 31-game winning streak on the line against Kentucky. On top of that, The 1993 SEC Championship squad will be honored on the 25th anniversary of their wild season that started a since-unmatched run of four straight conference crowns. On today's show, we'll remember that team by chatting with Hall of Fame wide receiver Chris Doring and cover this team by talking to running back Malik Davis and FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Let's get started by hearing from one of the greatest and most beloved Gators of all time. Given his status as a fan favorite and Hall of Famer, it's easy to forget that Chris Doring began his career as a walk-on. After redshirting his freshman year, the Gainesville native quickly made his presence known and was responsible for one of the most iconic catches in Gator history to defeat Kentucky during the 1993 season. We caught up with the current SEC Network analyst to discuss the 93 squad and his take on the current Gators, but began by getting his reaction to hearing the legendary call from Mick Hubert. Jack Jackson, Chris Doring, wide right. Aubrey Hill, Harrison Houston go wide left. Third and 10, 28-yard line. Werfel dropping back to throw, pumps and fires the ball over the middle. It's Doring! It's Doring! He's got a touchdown! Doring's got a touchdown! Oh, my! Doring's got a touchdown! The Gators have taken the lead! Unbelievable! Chris Doring's got a touchdown! Oh, my! With two seconds left on the clock, First off, can't believe it's been 25 years since um, that catch, since that game. But I still get goosebumps every time I hear that that play, every time I hear a mixed call. And, you know, it's interesting because that was kind of both of our arrivals on the uh, on the scene. Mick was still early in his career as the Florida play-by-play guy. And that was my first start. Caught my first career touchdown pass early in the fourth quarter, only to come back and catch, uh, you know, what turned out to be one of the more famous plays in the history of Florida football. So I, I'm... Uh, Blessed that people still remember that catch that uh, that is held in such high regard in Gator history, and just uh, happy we were able to find a way to win that game. Because as a kid, I grew up with many a heartbreak, unfortunately, at the hands of the Gators losing games they should have won and could have gotten championships by winning. And uh, you know, just felt like that was really cool to have been a part of what turned the tide. Coach Spurrier described it as the game that kind of turned the tide of the the Florida program. And so from there, the trajectory just completely changed. And so really proud of being a part of that, uh, that team. You know, it's an interesting dynamic. And you talk about being a Florida fan growing up and then playing for Florida. It seems like players today, they don't necessarily have an allegiance to a school, right? They go through recruiting and they bounce around, they go wherever's best for them. How much more of an appreciation did you have for what you were able to accomplish at Florida, given that you grew up in Gainesville and had such a, a connection? Yeah, I think for, for me, it was more than just a stepping stone to the NFL. You know, my, my goal as a kid 
after having attended every Florida football game since I was about the age of five on, uh, was to play for the Gators. I wanted to run out through that tunnel when the announcer yelled, here come the Gators, and you know, catch a touchdown at Florida Field, wanted to wear the orange and blue. And so it was, it was kind of ironic because I never even really, you know, I thought the NFL was kind of an afterthought for me and was excited about trying to do that. But to me, it was more about playing at Florida and being a part of those traditions. And I, I think it really did mean a lot more to me because I knew the history, uh, because I had been a part of, you know, all those games as a fan sitting in the same stands as the, the guys I was now having a chance to play in front of. It was one of those things that while I was going through it, I had a, a higher and better level of appreciation than probably most of the, the other players that were on the team because of my experiences as a kid. When you become a Hall of Famer, you're, you're an iconic player. Uh, a lot of people might forget that you started as a walk-on. So can you tell us, how did you ultimately get yourself from being a walk-on to being a, a Hall of Famer? Not something a lot of people are able to pull off. Yeah, you know, for me, I thought it was, um, I never really sweated the fact that, that I was having to walk on. It was disappointing to me, but I obviously was the, the best path for me in, in, in hindsight because it, it forced me to work hard. I was constantly looking for validation, constantly looking to, you know, ha- earn that scholarship first. And then once I had the scholarship, I was never going to, you know, take it for granted because of what it, it took to get to that point. I think a lot of times guys come out of high school and they're told how great they are and they're given a scholarship and they relax and they become complacent. For me, it taught me a work ethic and, and you know, just the pursuit of, of one goal and then moving on from there to the next goal. And so, um, it really was kind of a meteoric rise for me after walking on in 91 and getting redshirted. I was fortunate enough to make the travel squad as one of the top eight receivers in 92 and, and dressed and, and traveled in every game that season. Had my first catch against Tennessee in a blowout loss in Knoxville. And then 93, things really kind of accelerated for me. Um, got put on scholarship right before the season in two days. And um, two weeks later, we're playing in the opening game in the Swamp, and I made a couple catches there. And then the next game, we go to Lexington, and Coach Spurrier tells me right before the game that I'm I'm starting. And then, uh, you know, I catch my first career touchdown pass in the fourth quarter of that game. And I really felt like I had reached the pinnacle every, of every childhood dream I'd ever had, only to find out that I'd come back and make a much more memorable catch in the uh, waning seconds of that game to help uh, seal that victory. So it, it's ironic because that was only my second career touchdown. It was really my second career game, first start ever. And, um, you know, my whole fortune changed from that play on. And then my own recognition, you know, in the 92 year, every time they referred to me, it was as walk-on Chris Doring. Sure. And even after I got the scholarship, it became former walk-on Chris Doring. So I was constantly looking to shed that title, even though it's something that I, I certainly um, value in hindsight. It was uh, a little bit of a scarlet letter for me at the time. What other moments stand out to you from that season that, that were just as critical to the championship run that maybe don't get as much attention? Yeah, I mean, personally, there was uh, the, the game against Mississippi State a couple weeks later. Uh, I had 12 catches for 199 yards and three touchdowns. In that game, I got knocked out. I came back and played again. I mean, it was just a, a really, I remember it seemed like the day lasted forever, but one of the, one of the highlights of my career for sure. Um, as a team, you know, a big win in Jacksonville, uh, heading into the game against the Bulldogs. The game plan was, was a lot of stuff that would have kind of featured me. I was supposed to catch a lot of cover two posts in the slot, a lot of corner routes coming out of the slot. And, um, right before the game, it was just a complete deluge. It poured so badly. We, we had to change our game plan. 
And um, Eric Rett ended up carrying the, the load the, the majority of the day that day. Uh, we were fortunate to get a timeout call late by Anthony Lott at the end to, to preserve the victory on a touchdown pass that ended up not counting by Eric Zier because of the timeout call. But, um, you know, those are some of the key memories that I have. And then the, the bowl game against West Virginia. West Virginia, I believe, was undefeated. One of the top teams in the country felt like they deserved to probably play for the national championship. And they scored the first touchdown of the game. And we went on, I believe, to score 42 unanswered from there. So it was uh it really was a memorable year in both, um, you know, kind of getting over the hump of losing or winning a game that typically Florida had lost uh, in the past, like the Kentucky game, and then winning in the Sugar Bowl where we had kind of uh, struggled in previous appearances in the in the '91 season, particularly against Notre Dame. Another thing that was special about 1993 was that it was the first of four straight SEC titles for the program, which amazingly hasn't been done since, even by a Nick Saban team. Could you sense at the time something special was starting to brew in the program? And if so, what was it? Yeah, you know, I, it was it was interesting because a lot of folks around the conference, they termed us roadkill because anytime we left uh, Gainesville, we, we got beat on the road, struggled against Syracuse, uh, I believe in 91 when we went up there, didn't really know how to, to win yet. And that, that's the thing that I think I'm so proud of about being a part of that team was because we, we really did have to learn these things. You know, it's not something that necessarily comes naturally. We learned how to have confidence and swagger the way that, that Coach Spurrier did. We learned how to travel on the road in a business-like manner and, and, and handle things starting that season. It's such a process, and I think people take for granted what it takes to, to kind of get to that point. But, um, you know, it, it was really cool to kind of see the evolution of what we were in uh, the early years of Spurrier's uh, days as the head coach to what we became and, and um, credit that 93 season with a lot of that growth. The game has changed so much over the years, and especially the wide receiver position. When you look today at the wide receiver spot, how is it different from back when you played? That was kind of the, the beginning of the change. I mean, Coach Spurrier came in and, and the SEC was uh, three yards in a cloud of dust kind of running the football all the time, and Spurrier went four and five wide receivers, and we're throwing the ball all over the yard and scoring 45, 50 points a game, and people are, are having to change the way that they played offense just to try to keep up. You know, I really feel fortunate because I played for Coach Spurrier and played for Dwayne Dixon, our receivers coach, who knew the passing game better than anybody I've been around. And um, the reason I was able to have success that I did at Florida and then on in the NFL over a 10-year span was because I was taught the little things. You know, I was taught – the shoulder lean coming off the line of scrimmage. I was taught how to pump my arms. I was taught how to get my head around. And that was something I don't think a lot of, a lot of guys really did, you know, in college back then. So clearly a part of something that was revolutionizing college football in general, the passing game and specifically the quarterback and receiver positions. Uh, we felt like we were well ahead of what everybody else was doing. I want to talk about your role with the SEC Network in just one second, but it's actually because of that role uh, that you will not be able to attend the reunion this weekend. So I know that's got to be a bummer for you. But outside of, of special reunions like this, how have you stayed in touch with these 1993 guys that, that are part of, of this, this special group? Yeah, you know, I am disappointed that I'm not going to have an opportunity to be at the at the reunion this weekend. So many great milestones to to kind of celebrate, including that that catch that I had against the same team 25 years ago. But I, I do feel fortunate because I'm I'm still very close with with Danny Warfel. I'm very close with Judd Davis. In fact, he works with me at my mortgage company, and I have a chance to see him quite a bit. It's few and far between when we all get together as a as a as a team. 
Um, but I do believe that um, there's a lot of great friendships that were forged um, back in those teams and bonded us together. It's something that even though we don't see each other a lot, we always have that in common and can uh, pick it up at a drop of a hat. Getting back to your role with the SEC Network, uh, how difficult is it to set aside the part of you that grew up in Gainesville, that went to Florida, that loves the Gators, when your job is to also be impartial and in some cases yeah. be critical of the Gators and you know, or say positive things about Georgia, which a lot of people couldn't fathom if they were, <laughs> if they were, <laughs> were Gators at, at some point? Well, I tell you, it was, it was interesting last year getting a chance to cover the Georgia run to the Rose Bowl. Uh, I was fortunate to have a chance to make my first trip to the Rose Bowl with Dari Noka and Matt Stinchcomb. Matt's a, the dog. Dari mm-hmm. was a, a Sooner. And so, you know, I found myself on the sidelines during that game cheering for Georgia as if they were the Gators. And I know that's probably blasphemous for a lot <laughs> of uh, Florida players to hear, Florida fans to hear. But for me, you know, my role with the SEC Network is something that I am so grateful for. Um, this is a conference that I grew up watching as a lifelong Gator fan, and so I know the history very well. There's no conference like what we have that'll, um, at the end of the year in the bowl year, cheer SEC, SEC, you know, just as a, a statement of pride about being a part of the greatest athletic conference in the entire country. So I have no shame about complimenting any of the teams in this conference. It is a little bit of a challenge sometimes when you have to, to criticize Florida. But again, that's a that's a, a role that I have become more comfortable with after doing it, uh, the, the studio show for, for them now in my fourth season. I, I think the great thing I like about working there is that all the fans know that we, we all, as analysts, played at one of the schools in the conference. Mm-hmm. And so naturally, we have an allegiance to that school and we can, we can be a little bit more homerish at, at times. Uh, there were games where we were playing LSU and Booger and I are in the studio cheering like it's, it's our, <laughs> our son out there playing. And I think people respect that and um, would be disappointed if we didn't have that passion about our, our uh, alma maters. A couple final things for you. With Florida, Kentucky being this weekend, we talked about the catch. Uh, the catch kept the streak alive at seven. Could you ever have imagined it would get to 31? Yeah, I don't, I don't know how you possibly could imagine beating any team in any sport 31 times in a row. It seems fairly unfathomable. But um, you know, Kentucky certainly has had their opportunities, including that 93 game. i got to be honest with you, there's a side of me that I almost feel sorry for the, the Kentucky fans mm-hmm. for what they've had to go through during that streak. But at the end of the day, they've had their opportunities, including last year. I mean, they didn't cover uh, Florida's receivers on two different occasions. And um, if you're not going to to do the things – the minimal things like that, you don't deserve to win. And I think that's, you know, I talked about the growth process earlier uh, that we experienced as a program under Coach Spurrier. I think you're seeing some of the same things at Kentucky. Mark Stoops has done a tremendous job with upgrading talent on both sides of the ball, making it competitive at every single position. They have a really good team coming into the Swamp on Saturday. And so any Florida fan that thinks, hey, your Gators are going to show up and, and make it 32 games in a row, uh, you're sadly mistaken. I was, I was pretty surprised, in fact, to see Florida as a two-touchdown favorite just because of how, how talented Kentucky is and how you know Florida's coming off that, that strugglesome season last year. So it's not going to be a cakewalk by any means, but uh, hopefully we can keep the streak going for another year. Final thing for you, what do you make of the Gators after week one of the Dan Mullen era as far as what your expectations were, what you thought of Felipe Franks, just your yeah. your overall assessment of uh, a very limited sample size so far. I had a chance to, to see a couple of the practices and scrimmages during the, the, the fall camp. Um, I, I got to be honest, I was very concerned with the offensive line. I was very concerned with the quarterback play. 
Um, I know that the team that Florida played was far overmatched on Saturday, but you can only control what you can control. You show up and play whoever's on that other opposing sideline. And I thought the good thing for Florida was that they executed really well. There was not a whole lot of mistakes made. You didn't see a whole lot of false starts penalties or, or motion penalties, guys not knowing where to line up. The defense was dominant, certainly against the passing game. Um, and I thought Felipe Franks showed a, a level of poise that we hadn't seen from him last year. Seemed to make the right decision in terms of reads and where he was going with the football. And we all know he's had a, a really good arm for a while, but I thought he threw some nice catchable balls. There's a difference between you know when you need to hum it in there and when you need to throw it catchable for your receivers. I can speak to that for sure. You know, I thought he did a nice job of making those those balls catchable for his receivers on Saturday night. Chris, we're disappointed that you won't be able to be there for the Union, and we know you're disappointed, but we thank you for uh, for sharing your stories, your memories of that season with Gator fans on here, and hopefully we'll see you at a game again very shortly. That sounds good. Thank you for having me on, and uh, go Gators. Expectations were high for Game 1 under Dan Mullen, and the Gators certainly made an impression against Charleston Southern. We recapped last week's win and looked ahead to the Kentucky matchup with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. And Scott began by sharing his takeaways from the opener. Well, I expected to see a lot of energy, and that's what we saw from the players, from the fans, from the coaching staff. I thought, you know, Dan Mullen, there was so much about the offseason being about him re-energizing the program. Anytime you have a first-year coach, there's going to be a part of that is going to be the storyline. But in his case, it was really discussed as something the program needed. I thought it came off as expected in that regard. I mean, uh, you know, he ran out of the tunnel he talked about it afterward, how in that moment right beforehand, it was a big moment for him. Something that he had uh, obviously waited on for, what, nine months since he came back and worked several years uh, maybe to get an opportunity for a job like Florida. Finally got it, went out and took care of business. As far as what happened on the field, Adam, overall pretty clean game. They've had some of these matchups over the last few years that you thought they were going to do what they actually did against Charleston Southern but they didn't because, you know, they might get a win, but it just didn't look good. It was a lot of mental errors, a lot of penalties. I thought overall they played a pretty clean game. And, uh, you know, Chris can talk more about this, but obviously Felipe Franks' performance is one that you have to pay attention to. I thought that's probably the best, most comfortable we've seen him as a Florida's quarterback. One of the things that you just, you absolutely had to have exiting that game is a, a confident Felipe Franks. Um, I think he looked more poised. He looked more comfortable. He came off a couple uh, first reads and went to second reads and uh, threw some really nice touch passes. We saw a long pass that didn't get caught in the first quarter. It really showed off his arm. Not that that was any of a surprise, but um, and all, all of this needs to be contextualized in that, you know, Charleston Southern is not a very good team. They were overmatched across the board, but five first half touchdown passes by a quarterback uh, who threw um, nine all last season, the team threw 10 all last season. Uh, I think we got a preview of what the kind of aggression with which uh, Dan Mullen intends to uh, to play with this year. You ask also uh, what we didn't see, and I think Dan Mullen addressed that in his Monday news conference, Adam. I mean, he would like to see maybe a little, a little bit more from the running game probably. He only gave the ball to Jordan Scarlett six times. Um, I don't think we saw a whole bunch of a lot of major push from that unit up front. I think they rushed for over 200 yards, which is good. 
Uh, but that should be expected in a, in a game against a team like Charlton Southern. But this will be a, pro- a process, excuse me. Ten different guys, I believe, uh, uh, carried the football. I think we all know that uh, Jordan Scarlett, Malik Davis, who I, I was thoroughly impressed with given that he's coming off knee surgery from uh, last November. Um, he was a guy who took a hit, made some nice cuts. Mullen was asked about his cut, and he, he said he was more impressed with the, with the hit he took because the guy has to eventually take that first hit. So, uh, uh, you know, overall, just um, Florida does what Florida should have done against a team like Charleston Southern, wins the game 53-6, to and that's something you would expect in a, against an opponent like Charleston Southern. Chris, when we talked about freshmen who, who may make an impact, fans should look for, uh, you mentioned Evan McPherson, and we saw him come out, and he looked really, really strong in terms of place-kicking duties, and that's an area we know Florida's got a really, really big pair of shoes to fill. So can you talk about the way that he came out and kicked the ball and some of the other freshmen you were impressed by? Well, frankly, that was a little surprising to me. Uh, I thought Jorge Powell had this job, and Sure enough, there's uh, Evan McPherson trots out after that early uh, touchdown pass. I imagine that's something that Jorge Powell was was probably uh, uh, kind of upset about, being the fifth year senior walk on and everything. But we knew about Evan McPherson; he was one of the, he was one of the top uh, place kickers rec- recruited in this region and probably nationally. Um, he was from Alabama, and we saw a leg on the guy. Um, kicked his extra points. He kicked his field goals. He kicked off. Uh, eventually, Jorge Powell got in the game in the second half. So uh, in terms of um, his performance, obviously we'll we'll see how it all bears out when he has a few more uh, high pressure kicks down the line. But um, you know, it's a guy who's al- he's already tasted you know what it's like to be out there and and have to do some stuff in the swamp. So obviously that's a good thing. As far as the other freshman, the Damian Pierce led the team in rushing, but what jumped out at me was that play he made on special teams. Dan Mullen's been talking special teams, special teams, special teams. This guy, he puts this. Guy in the uh, kickoff team, this guy broke Herschel Walker's uh, finish with more rushing yards than Herschel Walker in, in Georgia State history. The guy just beelines like a freight train down on a kickoff and just clotheslines. Uh, and he gets rewarded for that. Damn if he didn't get right back in the game as a running back and, and get some chances to uh, to run the football. So uh, that jumped out at me. I don't know where his where he's going to end up in the pecking order and if he's going to get some primetime carries uh, this weekend against against Kentucky, but. Yes, Evan McPherson and Damian Pierce are two guys that kind of flashed and kind of caught my attention in that first game. When talking about special teams, you know, we heard Dan Moen preaching that throughout the offseason, and, and you always want to see well, are they, how serious are they about this? They've certainly talked about it. I, I think the answer to that was pretty clear when you saw, you know, you had a lot of people that you wouldn't normally see on special teams that were covering kicks and they were gunners. I mean, it looks like they're, they're putting their money where their mouths are in terms of the importance of special teams, and that also paid off with it the block kick that was probably the the highlight of the night. And one of the things that Dan Mullen has said, Adam, is special teams are one-third of the game. Now, every coach says that, but like you said, money where the mouth is, he means it. Another thing Dan Mullen mentioned after the game, and again he mentioned in his Monday press conference, was he really liked, there's a 70-yard run right before the half. You know, instead of like, all right, they're about to score and kind of like hanging your heads a little bit, they end up blocking that kick and, and keep the shutout. They lose the shutout late in the game. But what do they do? They block the extra point and return it for a two-point conversion. This went right to the stuff that he talks about. You you hear it in basketball all the time. Billy Donovan used to talk about it all the time. Next play, next play, next play. Forget what just happened. You know That's something Dan Mullen talks about a lot, and obviously those guys uh, embraced that the other night. And I keep going back. It's easy to embrace stuff against Charlton Southern, but you can only play and you can only do the things against the opponent on your schedule. Florida did the stuff that they were asked to do against Charlton Southern the first time out. 
And some of the guys who will attest to a special teams mattering, obviously we mentioned Damian Pierce, Zachary Carter with the block kick, yeah. Jeremiah Moon uh, with the block uh, kick later in the game. Uh, those guys uh, all contributed heavily on special teams, got called out in a positive way by Mullen afterward. And another guy, you know, Austin Perry, the, uh, the kid who picked up the blocked extra point and got two points out of it, going to write a story on him. He's got an interesting story, but... You know, in talking to him, I mean, here's a guy who almost quit football. He walked back on, and uh, he gets a big moment for himself. And he was saying that, you know what, this staff has really put an emphasis on special teams. It, it kind of gives guys like Kim walk-ons and otherwise guys who might not get on the field any other way. It gives them a little bit extra motivation because they know if they go out there and make a play on special teams, they might get into the game uh, it's a great motivator. So let's talk about the next opportunity for this team, which is, of course, Kentucky in the Swamp. A lot of talk is made about the streak. It is every year. It probably will be uh, until that streak ends, if it ever does. But this is a Kentucky team that, under Mark Stoops, has been you know, seemingly on the rise the last few years, and yet they don't quite get over the top. Last year, obviously, they had Florida, and, and they lost that game. They struggled in their opener against Central Michigan. Florida is a double-digit favorite as a result of their two performances. Well, what do we make of this matchup coming up on Saturday night in the Swamp? I think they lost four of their last five last season after a pretty decent start. Ended up losing to uh, Northwestern in the, in the Music City Bowl in a close game. Obviously, they played Florida to a one-point game. They had a 13-point lead in the fourth quarter. Florida wins the game when Freddie Swain isn't covered on a goal line pass that you probably could have thrown. Uh, <laughs> um, but, I, I mean, the, the story, of course, of this game, it's, it's 31 straight. Kentucky last beat Florida in 1986 up in Lexington. I believe the score of that game was 10-3, to one of those shootouts uh, <laughs> between Galen Hall and Jerry Claiborne when he was running the old wide tackle six defensive front. Um, Exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God for Steve Spurrier came in. (laughs) Yeah, but he didn't come in for four years after (laughs) until four years after that. So, so since 1987, Florida's played Kentucky annually, and it's the longest active winning streak in the country, one team over another. It's the fourth longest in NSA history, one over another. They can tie for the third longest. And yet, I'm sure Kentucky's coaches over the years have said this. I'm sure Florida's coaches, I know Florida's coaches over the years have said this. What happened 31, last 31 times, doesn't matter. Dan Mullen said Monday, the, you know, the streak is going to end one day. That's just the nature of sports. He's absolutely right. It's going to end one day. He just doesn't want it to happen this weekend. And uh, to, to do that, again, Kentucky, decent team, 15 starters back. They have one of the best running backs in the league in Benny Snell, 1,333 yards last year, led the league with 19 touchdowns running the ball. You know, they can come in and try to establish some things. Florida's, of course, one of their strengths is defensive front. So you want to get them into a situation where they got to throw the ball and not have to just come in and grind out yards with Benny Snell and what have you. Um, what Felipe Franks is going to have to do will be harder than it was against Charleston Southern. He's going to have to be more poised. The pass rush is going to be uh, better, I'm sure. And the defensive uh, resistance on the front when it comes to the running game is probably going to be uh, more so. So um, offensive line is going to have to be better than it was last week. Crowd is going to have to be more into it than it was last week. Dan Mullen praised them. They're going to have to they're going to have to come in and be ready ready to deal with this. It's an SEC opener. It's a big game. I like the fact uh, that Kentucky was a permanent Eastern Division cross rival division uh, opponent for Mississippi State the last nine years. So there's an element of familiarity both with what Mark Stoops does and with the personnel there. So they have a little bit of a head start. So. SEC opener, another really as big as last week was. This is obviously bigger because it's conference play. 
It is, and everything Chris said I agree with to some extent. But I, I'm not for sure this streak's going to end in my lifetime because <laughs> I, I really thought last year this thing was done. The Gators were down by, what, two touchdowns, and Kentucky lets two guys go unguarded, and Gators pull out with Luke Del Rio coming in. They pull out a win at Lexington 28-27 in a game, quite frankly. I didn't think they had any reason to win. I know that we've talked about this storyline so much in recent years, uh, and it is going to eventually end. Dan Mullen certainly, as he said, doesn't want to be the guy. Dan Mullen was a 14-year-old freshman quarterback in high school when this thing began, so uh, it's just hard sometimes to get your head around some of these little tidbits to think about how long this streak's actually existed. I think bottom line, since Mark Stoops has been there, there's been this sense of renewed optimism around that program, and while they've had their moments, I mean, this was uh, Mullen's constant rival in the SEC crossover rival while he's at Mississippi State. He was even beating them there. He went eight and one. Adam, allow me to provide further context to this. Uh, <laughs> yes, to the, context is overrated I, at times. I, in 1986, when the Gators last lost at Kentucky, you could have bought Apple for 63 cents a share, <laughs> and uh, gas was 90 cents a gallon. Okay, mm. and. Uh, For the first time, smoking was banned in U.S. public transport, trains, planes, and buses. So, this has been a while. But one other, before we depart this historical streak, for context, this is why I think the Gators get the job done on Saturday, as they have every year of your lifetime, Adam. That's right. During this streak, the Gators have scored 733 more points in Kentucky. That seems a lot to me. That seems a lot. It does seem like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, think, I think Steve Spurrier contributed. Yeah, he's responsible for a lot of that. <laughs> None of that yeah. Steve Spurrier definitely contributed to that. And, uh, and one of those years was 1993. And that's relevant because on Saturday night, the Gators will celebrate the 25th anniversary of that 1993 team. It was the first of the four straight SEC titles. And, Chris, I know you're doing a special series all week long on FloridaGators.com on that team and just what a, a special season that was. Can you talk about some of the reasons why that year was so memorable in, in the history of the Gators? I sat in Coach Spurrier down the, down the hallway, and he just it is one of his favorite teams. He goes, i got to say it's one of the favorites. Can't say it's favorite. Got a lot of favorites, but it's one of the favorites. But, it, I mean, they set a record for points scored, set a record for yards gained. First team in school, they won the Southeastern Conference title. It was their second one, but it's the first time they won it with the uh, in the SEC championship game, which was in its second year. They beat Alabama at Legion Field, one of their home fields, to, to win that conference title. Um, first team to win 11 games in school history. First team to win the Sugar Bowl. Um, so just a lot of firsts, a lot of great players. And the biggest of all is that it started that run of four straight SEC titles. And to this day, I might add that only two coaches have ever won four straight SEC championships. Those would be Bear Bryant and Steve Spurrier. Not even Nick Saban has won four straight SEC titles during that incredible uh, current uh, present-day run that he's had at Alabama. So some remarkable players uh, on that football team, guys that are in Florida's Hall of Fame right now. And uh, uh, a lot of those guys came on board in Spurrier's, some of Spurrier's first few signing classes, whether you're talking about Terry Dean, Kevin Carter, um, Ed Robinson, uh, Jack Jackson, Willie Jackson had was on the team when Spurrier got here, of course, but was a was a great uh, senior that year. Eric Rett was a guy Spurrier inherited. You know, one of the greatest running backs in Florida history. 
They'll be here this weekend. They have a reception um, pregame, 4 o'clock over at Wright Union. They'll be mulling around over there. And then uh, they'll be here for the game, the Kentucky game, to enjoy that. So great football team, um, a lot of great guys on that team, a lot of great memories. If you're an old guard Gator fan, I'm sure you remember that season very, very fondly. Not only that, Chris, it ties in nicely to this Kentucky streak. Maybe the most famous Gators touchdown of the whole run against Kentucky, right? 1993? Let's relive that, Scott, shall we? Go ahead. What do you remember about that touchdown? I remember uh, Danny Werfel dropping back with a few seconds left, hitting Chris Doring. Gators win 24-20 in Lexington. And really, when you look at the streak, I think at that point, they had won, what, six in a row? Mm -hmm. It won the year before 35-19 in the, the swamp. This one was up in Lexington, and it looked like it was going to be over. Yeah, and I think they won the next year, like something like 70-7, to if I'm not mistaken. But 73-7. 73-7. I want to add also that the win that, that made Chris Doring a, a virtual legend as a walk-on um, started really something spectacular for, for him. I believe he was a, a, a sophomore walk-on at the time. But it was the second game of the year. Terry Dean had won the starting job, and he was benched for four interceptions. Enter Danny Werfel. He, was, he won very good, three interceptions, but he did throw that last pass with three seconds left in the game to win a game that Florida, by rights, should have at best tied. Now, I have a addendum to that game, if I may. Will you indulge me for a moment, Adam? Chris, I will always indulge you. You know that. <laughs> I covered Florida for two newspapers, the Tampa Tribune and the uh, Orlando Sentinel from 1990 through 2000. I was there for a hundred and almost 150 football games. I missed one, and I happened to miss that game that night in Lexington because my uh, wife uh, went into labor two months early, and my daughter was born two months early, born that night. Three hours before that uh, that game kicked off in Lexington. So a little, little selfish indulgence there. Yeah, that is very cool. Let's move on to our PAT this week. And since we're talking about celebrating an anniversary of a memorable season in Gator history, I want to know, uh, for the two of you, a special season for one of your teams that will always stand out. You know, if, I don't know if it's the 93 Gator football team, but this could be very selfish. You could take this anywhere you want. One of those years that you remember as a fan or a season that you covered that was just a really magical, special year that you have very fond memories of. Well, for me, Adam, I don't think this will ever change as long as I live. Uh, and baseball is always my first love, as we've probably talked about once or twice on here. The 1991 Atlanta Braves, as a kid growing up in the South back then, the Braves were my team. Uh, uh, they went from last to first, faced off with the Minnesota Twins, and I still think the best World Series in history, seven games. I think three extra inning or four, three walk-off wins. Uh, it was just if you were in Atlanta around that time, uh, that was just some very unexpected uh, run that kicked off an amazing run by the Braves. And oddly enough, here we are, what, 27 years later, and the Braves are a surprise again. I watched the, um, I think the NFL Network did a 30-year retrospective of the 1987 Redskins, and it was the strike team. Uh, they had a work stoppage, and I was covering the NFL for the Tampa Tribune at the time. I was covering the Bucks, and was there for scab games, uh, going to practice, seeing these bartenders and uh, bouncers and guys coming out of jail, some guys on parole playing NFL games that mattered and watch guys cross picket lines. Uh, you, people don't remember this, but, I mean, Joe Montana, Lawrence Taylor, uh, there were some really, really good players that crossed yeah. the picket line during that season. And fl- the Redskins were the one team 
And I, again, I was born in Washington, D.C. The Redskins were the one team that had no players cross the picket line. Joe Gibbs told them, stay away. We'll handle things here. We want you to stay unified and stay together. And meanwhile, Bobby Beather, who just went into the Hall of Fame uh, this summer, he found enough guys to field the only team that went unbeaten among the among the so-called scabs, including Tony Robinson, who a lot of longtime Gator fans will remember as the quarterback at Tennessee. And they end up, the strike gets settled uh, on a Monday, all right? And because the Redskins were playing the Dallas Cowboys in Texas Stadium that night, because games had already been played, there, even though the strike got settled, the rules stipulated that the scab team still had to play that night, even after the strike had been signed and, and settled. Hmm. And the, the Redskins took the field against a team that had Tony Dorsett, Randy White, Danny White. They had they had zero players cross the picket line, but Dallas, I believe, had 11 players of their regular players. And the Redskins went in and won the game 13-7 to at Texas Stadium, carried Joe Gibbs off the field, ended up going on to win the Super Bowl that year with Doug Williams, who I knew a little bit from the Buccaneer, from my Buccaneers time in Tampa. And that was just a great moment for him, obviously a historic moment for an African-American quarterback to win a game like that. But uh, that was the 30-year anniversary last year, and I kind of uh, I kind of appreciated kind of reliving some of those memories of that. Very cool indeed. Uh, I'll give you guys the 2006 Florida Gator football team. I was a freshman in college. I came in at a pretty good time. Uh, and, and getting to be on on that run and you know the Jarvis Moss moment in the swamp, still probably my favorite individual moment uh, in Gator lore. And then having a chance to go out to Arizona with my dad for the championship game, and just the way that whole season came together, as improbable as it was at times, and as much of a kind of an, an underdog story as Florida was in that year, as opposed to the 08 year. Uh, I'll give you the 2006 Florida Gator football season as my answer for that. That's pretty good. A uh, pretty good pick at him. It was a good time to be in college. I, I will not deny that. I, I I fully recognize that in hindsight. Well, it's always a good time to uh, check out what Chris and Scott have going on over at FloridaGators.com. Again, Chris has that special series on the 93 team. It's being out this week. So make sure to check that out each day. A, a new part of that story drops all the way through the week. And of course, Scott will be covering practice and the lead up as well to the big game on Saturday night. So we encourage everybody to follow them at Gators Scott at Gators Chris. Gentlemen, thank you very much. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, thanks, Adam. All right, Adam. Have a good week. After bursting on the scene early in his freshman campaign, few would have guessed the challenges that awaited Malik Davis later in the year. Florida's leading rusher went to Jacksonville feeling great, but left with a season-ending knee injury that derailed his stellar season and forced him to focus all of his energy on rehab. Many were surprised to see how quickly he recovered and got back on the field this past weekend, but a deeper dive into his story makes it easy to see how he used relentless determination to fight through the unexpected hurdle. We spoke to Malik about that challenge and the dynamic in the crowded running backs room, but he began by sharing how gratifying it was to be back in the swamp. It was an amazing feeling because we worked so hard over the summer and the spring and just getting out there. And my biggest like memory of this weekend is just going a lot of touchdowns because last year that was something we didn't do much, but we lit up the scoreboard and that was probably the most memorable thing from this past game. With a new coaching staff, a new vibe and all of that, can you talk about in what ways it felt different than it has in the past? Uh, just now I feel like with the new staff, we've become more of a team and everything is just clicking and everybody wants to do well. Everybody wants to win. 
if we can take things back for you a little bit, can you tell us about your family and where you grew up? Yeah, I grew up in uh, Tampa, Florida. Uh, I have four brothers, two sisters, and I was the youngest, so my older brothers always played football. And I used to just go out and watch them play games and watch them practice. And I just knew I just knew I wanted to play after seeing them play and practice all the time. And I also read that your mom wanted to maybe hold you off on starting football a little bit. But when you saw your brothers go, you said, no, I, I got to get out there and play. Is, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I didn't I didn't want to play. Uh, I didn't want to play flag football. So like the only thing like my mom was like, you play flag football right now. When I was young, I was like, no, nah, I was just waiting to play tackle. So. As soon as I was able to play tackle football, that's when I started. Once you started playing, I know you you always wanted to play from watching your brothers, but what was it that got you hooked on the game once you actually put on the pads yourself? Uh, just being out there making plays and uh, hearing the mom and my family members scream. That was the biggest thing. Now you've had something of a, uh, a years-long friendly rivalry with Ray-Ray McLeod, who a lot of people know is now up at Clemson. Yeah. Can you talk about that, that bond the two of you have and how much that pushed you growing up, sort of chasing him as a, a local legend? Yeah, that was uh, always like my brother. and uh, We always competed against each other. We, we played against each other just about every other year. And it was just fun because I knew his whole family. He knew mine. We Hang out all the time, so it was just it was fun. What did it mean when you started breaking some of his records, and and how much fun was that for you? It was fun because I had talked to him about it. We just used to always joke around about it and say when stuff like that. But it it meant a lot because I I knew how hard I worked and how hard my team was working. Like when I was in high school. Now we talked about your brothers. You had a little bit of a, a different path than them in that they went to public high school, but you went private. Can you yeah. talk about why your family made that decision and how you overcame some of your early challenges at Jesuit? Yeah, uh, my older brothers went to uh, public school and my parents, they just saw something different for me. And they didn't want me to uh, make any like wrong or bad decisions. So they thought that was that school, Jesuit high school would be best for me to go to. And I know that going there, it wasn't always smooth sailing for you because it, it was really hard work. You know, they don't care if you're yeah. a football player. They're going to put you through the paces there academically. Can you just talk about how you grew through that process and really learned how hard you, you did have to work on the academic side? Yeah, it was very different than I've known school to be before because in middle school, before I went to high school, I didn't really have to study ever. And going to that school, it was, it was way different. I always had homework tests, quizzes, and I had to study for it. I know my friends that went to public school, they never had to study, barely ever had homework. So it was just, at first it was challenging and it was different for me. But after after a while, I got I got the uh, hook of things and I started just doing what I was supposed to do, studying and just staying on top of myself. And once you did that, how do you feel like that helped you grow overall? How did that help you grow as a person as well going through that experience? I think it helped me grow as a person because you just re- become more responsible and like uh, you start to realize that nothing is just going to be handed to you and like just because you're a football player, uh, not even football player, just an athlete and nothing will be handed to you, you have to work for it. If we fast forward to the, the recruiting process for you, when it came time to make a decision about where to go to school and, and you got some big time offers, what made Florida the right place for you? I always wanted to go to Florida. So as soon as they offered me, like I knew I was going there. Like I, as a kid, I always wanted to go to Florida. As soon as they offered me, I didn't even have to think about it. What made you such a big Florida fan? Why was that an important part of your uh, your, your childhood? Uh, just growing up, me and some of my best friends, close friends, we grew up 
just watching them play, Percy Harvin, Tim Tebow, we just grew up watching the Gators play. Now, every freshman goes through some bumps, but early on, you had an incident that I'm sure fans will remember when you got stripped going in the end zone on a 75-yard run, which yeah, I'm sure is a humbling experience for you, but what do you remember about that play, and how did you grow from that experience? I had to realize it's college, and everyone's fast, and it was just different because I wasn't used to someone catching me from behind. Like like in high school, that nothing like that ever happened. So I just knew, like, when I'm on the field from now on, it's just everyone's skill level is just about the same. Everyone's good. Now, your freshman year took a real turn in Jacksonville when you suffered a season-ending injury. Uh, what do you remember about that play and the aftermath after you realized how serious that, that issue was? I just remember getting tackled, and I, di- I didn't know what it was. I got up and ran off the field, and I didn't think it was nothing too bad until I got to the sideline and my knee just swelled up. And once you realized it was pretty serious, I mean, what was that like for you emotionally as you're a freshman, you're having a great year, everything's going your way. How did you process that and, and work through that? It was a very, very humbling experience. And emotionally, I felt like it set me back, but then I knew everything happens for a reason. So I didn't try, I didn't try to feel sorry for myself or anything like that. I just, I just attacked rehab. That's how I took it. I just knew I had to get back out there. And I want to ask you about that rehab because a lot of people were doubtful that, that you would even be able to play this year. I mean, there, you look at knee injuries and even Carson Wentz right now with the Eagles, he's still not back on the field after a serious knee injury, you know, around the same time a year ago. So given that you're already back and making plays in the swamp so quickly, can you talk about what you did to be able to recover so quickly? Uh, I just rehab every day, like every single day. I knew I wanted to get back out there and be ready for the season. And I didn't want to have to sit out a whole season. So I just thought about it. Just I know I can con- just try to control what I can control. And I knew what I could control was just rehabbing, trying to get myself back out there. You're part of a, an incredibly deep group of running backs, very talented. Jordan Scarlett, Michael P. Ryan, Adarius Lemons, now Damian Pierce as well. What's something that each of them brings to the running backs room that makes them unique and helps that group overall? Jordan, he's just he's he's the oldest and he 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 understands the game a lot and uh he's a hard runner and uh same thing with uh P Ryan P Ryan he's a hard worker and uh he has great vision. Adarius is a hard nose runner. Um, Damian Pierce also just like Adarius, both of them runs really hard. When you've got so many great backs in in one group like that. How does that work as far as the competition goes? I'm sure you guys are pushing each other, you encourage each other, but also everybody wants the ball. So can can you talk about the dynamic between the running backs? Yeah, like you said, everybody wants the ball, and it's only one ball. So like I said, you just have to work hard, stay positive, and show the coaches why you deserve to get the ball. I'm going to ask you some superlatives among this group of guys. And you can say yourself. That's, that's an acceptable answer. I want to know who is the fastest among this group of running backs. <laughs> I don't even want to answer that one. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even want to answer that, but I, I, would, I would probably go with myself. If you line up on the line against any of those guys, you think you can win a race straight up? Yeah, and I think and I think each and every one, I think all of us would say ourselves, so, to be honest. That's just how, <laughs> that's just how competitive we are. What about the strongest in the group? Which one of you guys is the strongest? Who's going to take everybody on in the weight room? I don't know. That's that's a good that's a good question because I know Scarlett he could bench a house and Damian can squat a house. <laughs> so it just it just depends what it it depends what which rack you're going to, I guess. Yeah, I think it just depends. <laughs> 
right, let's take it off the field. Uh, I saw some of the video of the uh, the Madden tournament that you guys had recently, which looked really, really intense. I want to know who is the best Madden player among that group of guys. Oh, me. Definitely you me. for sure. Yeah, for sure. No hesitation. Why is that? No, just because I'm the best, and I beat all of them. So I'm the best, hands down. Okay. We'll take that to the bank. Uh, final question about the running backs. Uh, I don't, I'm sure you've seen – everyone's seen the video of uh, of Coach Mullen – you know, breaking it down a little bit on the sideline with Felipe. He, he was getting into it a little bit. It's, it's become a meme on, on Twitter. I'm curious, which running back is most likely to be showing off some moves as well on the sideline? Which, which one of you guys is the best dancer? Uh, Dancer, showing off moves, it'll probably have to be... Hmm. Is it you again? Nah. Not this not time? Not me. Not this time. It'll probably be... I don't know. I don't know, to be honest. None of us really dance often. Right, we'll, go, we'll go no decision on that one. Uh, I want to know... This past summer, the most interesting thing that you did, what was something when you stepped away from football that, that stood out to you and, and was a good experience? I think besides football, going out with some of my teammates and uh, going to schools, speaking with little kids and just talking with them, I think that was something weird that we that I've done over the summer. And how much does that mean to you, doing things like that in the community? Because I know you guys have a lot of opportunities to interact with people and share your story and have an impact on their lives. What does it mean to you to be in the position you are and be able to, to do those kinds of things? Uh, it means a lot because I know a lot of kids come from different backgrounds and they don't have anyone there to talk to them and you know give them advice like we did. So it means a lot. Final few questions for you, just about uh, what we saw this past weekend and what we're going to see coming up. I think everyone would agree the offense looked much improved from last year this past weekend, and a lot of that focus was on Felipe. I'm curious how you think that he's improved the most from last year to this year. I think he's improved the most just by uh, confidence level. He's very confident. He knows the game well. He's He knows how to get in and control the offense and that, I think those are the qualities you need as a quarterback as far as you're concerned I know that your biggest focus was just getting healthy in the offseason but how do you feel like you've grown and improved as a player from your freshman year to now your, your sophomore year uh, I think the biggest thing I just I don't take the game for granted so I, I try to do everything I can to make sure I leave it I leave it all out on the field and I do my best every time I go out there now week one to week two I know that Coach Mullen said, I'm looking for a lot of improvements. So for you, what do you think some of the biggest improvements the offense needs to make are from the Charleston Southern game to the Kentucky game? Maybe we'll just speed things up a little more. And we're doing we're doing a lot of stuff right. Like We look pretty good, but we just have to focus on the little things. Make sure we do the little things right. Well, Malik, we wish you a lot of luck doing those little things right this weekend. Again, congratulations on your rehab, getting back so quickly. And we wish you a lot of luck this week and the rest of the year. Okay, thank you. Appreciate it. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. The Gators take on the Wildcats on Saturday night at 7.30 in Gainesville, and you can follow the action on the SEC Network and the Gator IMG Sports Network. We'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode, so don't miss it. Until then... I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the swamp.